0: This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Film. Doing Our Work, Session 15, Implicit Unintentional Bias. Walking us through different brain tests, Dr. Claire Morse digs deeper into the subject of implicit and unintentional bias.
1: It's wonderful to see so many of you here. Um, Good people joining in this process of trying to understand and ultimately change the country we live in. And it's a big task, but together we can do it. And so, and part of what GARA stands for or adopts as a principle is further learning about how we came to be where we are in order to be informed and skilled and knowledgeable in how to make the changes that are needed. John um, made a point to say something about the series, addressing the question of institutional—I can't see you—institutional bias, and he used the term, uh, I believe, a circle or a loop, such that we are in a society that creates a bunch of biases that then help us maintain or cause us to maintain the very system that is creating these biases. So while we talk about our own individual situation, our own beliefs, our own uh, unintended responses, we also have to keep always in mind that the ultimate goal is an institutional one. We need to change the institutions that set this whole thing up. And the Doing Our Work series followed that logic. We started out Some of you have been here for many or all of them, not here, but have been to any or all of them. Um, And we started out with a notion of why, uh, an exploration of why white people benefit from looking at and participating in anti-racism work. And and the the presenter helped us see that we grow as people when we do that. We become more in tune with who we are and who we want to be. And then, in addition, to the extent that we have more honest and genuine relationships with other people, particularly people of color, people about whom we hold some implicit biases, we also enrich our own lives. And to the extent that we change the society, we make it better for all of us. So there's considerable gain in doing this work, even though it's hard, and I will say it's a lifetime. So <clears throat> following that, and the second one was to explore how difficult this work can sometimes be in the institutions in which we function, and people push back. We push back, and institutions push, push back. But the groundwater exploration st- established that all of our systems are creating disparities in outcomes between white people and people of color. And White people always come out on the top in these systems. This groundwater idea comes from the notion that if you go out in the morning to and you find a fish in your pond, you say, oh dear, what happened to that fish? It got sick or it got injured and it died. If you come out and you find a lot of fish, you say, my goodness, what happened to this lake or this pond? We better find out what's wrong with it. If you go to every pond, and you find a lot of fish, something's wrong with the groundwater, that's where we think we are. All the systems set us up for this, and because we live in, drink from, cook with, and otherwise use the groundwater, we need the institutional change in order to do that. But we're interlocked, because the groundwater sets up the biases that we're concerned by, and then because we have them, we maintain the groundwater contaminated or polluted or messed up or otherwise um, bad. Now, our predecessors created these systems. We didn't. It's not our fault. We didn't want this. We didn't choose it. We're not bad people because we're benefiting from it. But we are in that system. So our forebears were consciously and unconsciously and sometimes very explicitly establishing racist systems. And that was what the rest of the series, the, down, the Doing Our Work series documented in education, in housing, in uh, other syst- la- la- the previous year in courts, in the legal system. All the systems we look at show these disparities. We maintain them, and so do people of color, because we don't really understand how they got here or how to change it. We're also taught not to pay attention to them, and not to even see them, so that we are challenged and made very uncomfortable, and even we react with denial when we find that we're challenged. And when we begin to realize what's going on, I didn't know about you, but my husband, Larry, um, did the housing presentation, and every time he would tell me about what was going on, it was like, no, more of this? And constantly we see this. This is how it is. And I don't like it. And I wasn't brought up this way. And I don't think there's anybody in here who likes it or who is brought up. (laughs) to set out a system that is systematically penalizing people of color or privileging white people. But until we come to grips with that, we can't change it. <clears throat> so here we are. We were raised to believe in equality. We were raised to believe in fair treatment. We were raised to, to be non-racist, to treat everybody equally. Some people were even taught to be colorblind, which we already know that you can't do that. We don't use derogatory language. We value our nation's founding principles. People are created equal. Everybody has an equal opportunity, and so forth. Um, And so how come, if we all have these good intentions, the systems don't change? What's happening that keeps us with our good intentions, our explicit values from making the changes that need to be made. One part, so already, you already know one part. One part is because the whole groundwater is like that. And how do you purify your water? Well, you could buy bottled water, but what good would that do? I mean, if I purify my own water, that doesn't mean that the groundwater isn't still bad. And so that won't do it. <clears throat> Part of the reason that we can't do this is because we have implicit or unintentional biases. Biases meaning the way we see and respond to things aren't always what we think they are. They're unconscious or unintentional. Um, and how come? Where do we get them? Well, if you would uh, think about this, we, didn't, we weren't born with them, so we must have learned them. Okay, how did we learn them? Well, we have these wonderful, wonderful brains, and they learn all the time. They're continuously taking things in, and processing them, and doing something with them, storing them, or rejecting them, or reacting to them, or all of the above. And here's one thing, a, a, I think an interesting little demonstration of how powerful some of the things we learn can be. So if I could have the first slide, please. This slide is an example of a psychological study done um, in 1935. It's obviously a classic. And it was done first by a man named J. Ridley Stroop. Um, And here's what it does. In a moment, not yet, I'm going to ask you to say the color that the, that the words are written in, starting from the upper left. And I'm going to kind of quote, time you, unquote, not that it matters, but <clears throat> I'm going to say start, and then as you see them, just yell them out, and go across until you get to the end, all the way to the end. It won't take long. All right, uh, where's my watch? Second hand, go. Good. That took about 11 seconds. Okay. That's fine. Um, now, the next slide, you're going to do the same thing. Uh, Larry will change the slides for me in a minute. And again, start at the upper left. And the color that the, that the words are written in, the color of the letters. Okay, Larry? Green, Well, guess what? It took a little longer. <laughs> what, what did you notice? <clears throat> Hard. Because why? Oh, <laughs> the, the reading was automatic when they coincided, right? Just happened. Now, obviously, you didn't grow up, I mean, you weren't born like that. You grew up, learned to read, learned to read the colors, bang. Okay, you saw how awkward and strange and you made mistakes and people were laughing and got confused and had to go back and who knows. All right, let's try it one more time. Same deal. Ready? Go. Green, yellow, white. Better, right? Better. Yeah, still a few tricks. Well, I think I have a couple more slides, but I think the point has been made. What what did anybody do that you, what did you do that made it a little easier this time? You tried not to read, how'd you do that? (laughs) It's still hard, because it's automatic, you read those things. Anybody have any particular strategy that they kind of, I mean, try not to read which means slow down, sort of. Think about what you are gonna do, not what you f- first wanna do. And sort of put the brakes on and do that other thing. Anybody have any, sometimes people say,
2: below the words, I was just kind of seeing the
1: Look below the words, squint a little. Some people try to look at a corner of the word, of the letter. You find a strategy that works. Now, if I did it two or three more times, you'd get good. You still wouldn't be as fast, probably, as you were the first time, but you get close. So what's the lesson here? Well, twofold, obviously. First of all, you learned that near automatic response of reading the words, which tell the colors, and secondly, you learned, oh, if I think about this and take a little bit longer and adopt a particular strategy, I can change that response. Right? Okay. Now, <clears throat> not only do we learn an automatic response to what we see, we also learn to not see things even though they're there. So, um, time for the awareness test. I'm not sure how the uh, how the um, sound is going to be here. So, we will, don't you think that's a cute grandson? <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> not to mention his parents, you know, but <laughs> I'll tell you what, this afternoon he saved me. Our computer was printing all my notes this big at the top of the page. <laughs> I wanted them big so I could read them, not like this. Yep, that's it. Okay, so uh, I think the instructions are on the screen as well, but if they're not, I'll re- um, if, if they're not printed, I'll tell you what to do. So if you want to start it, go ahead.
3: This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear?
1: The way it works is when you're told to count the passes you come up with 13 or 11 or 12 or 14 or something like that and you don't see This person walking around in a bear suit that walks through, did somebody see the bear? No, okay it worked. There's a bear that walks through there and you just don't see it. And even when you know it's there, you sometimes don't see it. So we're trained to follow that and we learn these things. Now once you know that there's a bear there, can you see it? Yeah, most of the time. not always, but again, what I'm looking f- to establish is that we learn these things and it has a huge impact on how we perceive the world and what we, what we say. Okay, you can skip through those other st- um, pictures and get to the, yes, that's the awareness test. Okay, here we have one of my favorite organs in our human body, the brain. Um, this is a brain as though it were cut this way. So this is the middle part. And in that brain is a part where, uh, well, let me start by a great oversimplification of this brain, but it's a very useful one. The, this part leads to the spinal cord and this part has a lot to do with basic living functions control of blood pressure heart rate, and the end. those put kinds on. of things that go on you have to think about when, you're, when you do anything to them they just happen and can you put the mic Can you on uh, the mic sorry <laughs> and so on um, that that just happens right above that um and if you were to think of the brain this way And not have it tipped as it is in our bodies, but if it just were this way. Right above that is a section which is deeply involved uh, in emotion, and particularly, it's involved in two kind of generic. Okay, if I walk over. Okay, thanks. Two general reactions: one, to fight; something's dangerous, and I'm going to fight it, or Flight. Something's terrifying, and I'm going to leave. Um, could I have the next slide, please? Uh huh. That one would probably provoke flight. I'm not going to show one that I think would provoke fight because, uh, you know, not a good idea. But um, <laughs> but uh, this this snake is typically something most of us are afraid of, and we would leave. And that's protective, and that's good. You can get to the, go back to the other brain. (laughs) Uh, Go back one, please. No, the other, back, yes. Um, But that emotion is registered in those uh, parts of the brain right above where that stem, it's called the brain stem, is. And that's a very early forming part of the brain. And lots of animals who are not as, whose brains are not as elaborated as ours are, have that. And if you heard the term amygdala, which you don't probably need to worry about, but if you did, um, then that, the amygdala and the system, the connected other structures that are sort of around it, are part of the limbic system, and that's where a lot of emotion is processed. It's not the only place that emotion is processed, and it's not only processing emotion, but it is doing that. And so when the, the signal from the eye that there's a snake gets to the amygdala, it says, get me out of here. And that's a fast response because that snake could be after you. And you don't want to hang around and explore. You want to be gone. And if you're going to be in the fight mode, you want to be prepared so that would, would send out signals to get you all ready and your heart rate will increase and all those things for uh, a battle. Um, But the amygdala response is fast and it's unconscious. You actually are ready to flee before you realize it's a snake (laughs) in brain terms. Because the snake processing goes on um, the outer part. You can do the next brain slide, please. The outer, no, (laughs) yes. The outer part, which you see there, and that's, you know, that's this whole thing, is the last part of our brain to develop in um, evolutionary terms. It's the cortex and it does a lot of very sophisticated processing, including the slower processing. So the amygdala processes things real fast and you react. The cortex processes things more slowly and you think and you decide. So the real trick here, and maybe it's, uh yeah, maybe it's appropriate to think it this way. Get that cortex busy so that it can put the brakes on or so that it can make a decision. So they can do something alternative to flying, fleeing. Like, you all realize this isn't a real snake. You just figured out, oh, that's only a picture of a snake. I don't have to leave. You knew that, but the first response, and I sort of saw it on some people's face. Ooh. our across-the-street neighbor would have fled had she seen that picture of the snake, but most of us won't. So, okay, um, in the course of our evolutionary development, we've got this very large, very complicated neocortex. And particularly the part way out in the front is called the prefrontal, out here, um, cortex, and it's one of its major functions is what we call executive function. So it's like where a lot of the decision making goes on. And, you know, the way to think about this is not that up here there's some devi- deciding, like, you know, what should I do, what should I do, but rather that there's a whole set of neural impulses that are percolating through your brain, including here, where interpretation is made. But it's not just there, and it's not just interpretation. It's like, Bringing lots of things together and then making a decision about it and again that's for some of you You may have heard the term the system one and system two or the fast thinking and the slow thinking well the amygdala is fast and unconscious and the cortex is slow and rational system one (coughs) system two so um, is she ever going to get to implicit bias? So far, all we got is a brain lesson. (laughs) Wait a second, what's going on here? Well, yeah, but what I'm showing is how our brains are working when we're just seeing regular old stuff um, and thinking about regular old stuff. And then what happens when we make decisions, where's this um, implicit bias? What is it? Um, And I should say that we're talking about something that was relatively recently recognized as a real phenomenon by the Supreme Court, which is a pretty amazing turn of events, I think, um, in that uh, the science of implicit bias has now gotten into the court system in such a way that the Supreme Court recognizes it and Also, lots of companies have done stuff with training regarding implicit bias and police departments and school systems and so forth. So a lot of work has gone on with implicit bias um, in the last 20 or 30 years that now is sort of part of the way people think about how we think. Implicit bias are biases are unconscious learned associations which guide our behavior or influence our thinking or cause us to act or react in a specific way without our intending to do it or choosing or deciding or wanting or needing. Well, needing maybe if if you think needing to flee, but not in the rational sense, oh, I really need to do that. Unconscious or unintended means that they can be in contradiction to what we intend. And that's where it gets really important for us to think about them since maybe we who have explicit non-racist, anti-racist, egalitarian views might also have implicit negative views. In this case, negative views related to people of color. And if we did that and if they were, as I have suggested, partly involved in the amygdala and the emotional system and the fast reactions, we could have reactions initially that we aren't intending and we don't really like. And they might be exactly in contradiction to the ones we really do want, the explicit, the values driven and so forth. And again, these are learned. Um, just to take one, um, what, <laughs> what do you think about the smell of baking bread? Hmm, nice, right? Did you always have that? No, you learned it. Um, I think, you know, some people say if you wanna sell your house, you bake cookies the, <laughs> before you show it or something like that. Um, what about, for some people, uh, does it ever happen that when you see, uh, particularly I'm thinking of women, when you, you're walking down the street and you see a, a group of young African-American men on the street, what happens? What do you feel? Some maybe anxiety, fear, nervousness, oh, I don't want to go there, something like that, oh, really? I mean, did, is that consistent with what we really want if I were really, um, you know, egalitarian and all that stuff. Would I do that? Would I have those feelings? Probably not. Um, so, again, we learned them. Now, when you walk down the street and you see a group of young men that you think you maybe don't want to walk past, what do you do? Well, I'm I'm gonna leave you to think about that, not right now. Um, but we'll talk about it in a minute. So, again, here we've got this incredibly useful, functional, efficient, brain that's doing these things that we don't really like and I wonder if anybody took the implicit associations test. Anybody do it? What was it like? Uh, Let's see, well well, who wants to say a little about it? What you what you felt, what you did? Um, Oh and by the way if anybody has any questions and I went too fast or I skipped something just let me know because I'll answer them. But what was it like to take the implicit associations test? Anybody want to share? It was a lot like the colors in the words
2: test. There were faces of either European descent or African descent and words that either had good or bad connotations. And there was a right answer and a wrong answer for those word connotations. And you had, it was, it's on the computer, you had E for some answers and I for the others, and the point was to go through this as quickly as possible, following seven different types of quizzes. One where the association was strictly based on the ethnicity, and others where it was some combination of okay, E is going to stand for good and European, and I is going to stand for bad and African American, and then they switched. So you had to go through this as quickly as possible, really without you know, to get to the point where you weren't thinking about what you were looking at and just reacting to what the text wanted.
1: Okay, so anybody have any questions about how that was? Do you you get the idea that you're associating either, let's say in this particular case, good words with faces of white people or good words with faces of black people and being timed. And each time, as she said, you switch back and forth so that you do it on the right and on the left with black and with white, good and bad. <clears throat> and to do it as quickly as you can. And then what do you think <clears throat> happens? What might be going on? And she said like that color thing. What might be happening here? What do you think is faster? The good words with white faces or the good words with black faces? Good words with white faces. Eighty. <clears throat> 80- Good words with white faces is uh, the uh, association of good with white, bad with black, <coughs> that's built into us by the groundwater, by the associations that we see all the time, by the reactions our parents have, by the reactions <coughs> our friends have, by the things we see on television, read in the, in the newspapers, in the magazines, in the movies, etc. So that built up over time, this groundwater is teaching us an association between black and bad, between white and good. It's like, (coughs) so it takes longer to do the other association. And you make more mistakes doing it. And (coughs) that's the implicit awareness test. And it is a measure of unconscious, unintentional, Implicit biases. Yeah. My question was, does the (coughs) test work the same way when blacks take the test? The test is the same. The results are slightly different. About 80% of white people have a preference for white. About 40 to 50% of people of color have a preference for white. Uh Uh-huh. Now, so 80%, that means pretty much, most of us in the room are going to have the preference for white. And I have to say, um, <clears throat> on the resources list that, that you can get if you sign your email so we can email it to you, um, <clears throat> you will see that there's a, there's a video um, that you can look at in which um, long, two groups of people, black people and white people, are taking this test in a set, setting like this. And um, some of the people are long-term civil rights activists. And even they, white people, show this kind of unintentional, unconscious, implicit bias. So it's it's what we're in. It's what we live in. It's what our brains are doing for us. They're collecting all this bad information. I mean, but that's it. And so we're all, 80% of us, are in that, in that situation, and for people of color, it's less. Why would it be less? Why might it be less? Lower? <laughs> well, they have more positive associations with black people, other people of color, than we do. Because, you know, think about where we live, think about where we work, etc. cetera. Um, not so much association. So yeah, good question, very good question. And let me just say, one second, let me just say this test has been taken by I think it's up to two and a half million people by now and um, it's been, now, if you go to the website uh, also on the resources list, you will see that you can take tests for age, you can take tests for gender, you can take tests for various different things to reveal biases about those things. And so there are bunches of tests and there's, there's reference to hundreds of studies using the implicit association test and then there's the website where you can take all these things. So it's like it's been studied from the perspective of you know the psychologist, well you know if I take it today and I take it tomorrow, will I score the same way? Yes if the situation in which you are is about the same. If the situation is somewhat different, not necessarily, but why would that be? Well, because we're taking in information. If I were to take it uh in a in the presence of some of my black friends, I'm sure I'd score differently. But if I take it again just me, and I'm not in a particularly, you know, good, bad mood, whatever, yes, it's so that's called reliable. It will be about the same. Not identical, but about the same. Is it Predictive of anything useful, yes, you can use this test to predict how people will behave, what they might say, what they might think, what they might do. It is also similar in score to other measures of these same kinds of unconscious attitudes. It's not so good at predicting or being predicted by what we say we believe. In other words, I can express a lot of positive attitudes toward people of color and equality and fairness and non-discrimination and all those things, but my implicit biases can still be strong. So that, those can be in contradiction and that's when it hurts. That when it's, when it makes me feel like, oh dear, what am I doing? How come I say this stuff and it still doesn't work right?
3: Yeah um just a question about the test um to my recollection it doesn't it also uh rate your biases in terms of strength like if you have a moderate bias or a strong bias
1: right strong preference moderate strong preference, preference. Or, yeah. or or slight preference i think is the vocabulary yeah and when i say 80% that's 80% showing some preference i don't i don't remember the strong moderate and slight breakdown for either people of color or, or white people. But yeah, it's just on the po- on the positive side or the negative side. Um, you had a question. Um,
0: yeah, uh, thinking about the, um, the influence of the environment that you're in, the immediate environment and the broader environment, I, f- I found it very poignant that the test comparing the response, of preference was 40% for white people, um, I mean, you would think it would be 80% among, you know, participants of color favoring 80%. So right there, that is saying something about bias. Uh, Wait,
1: I, I missed something. Say it again.
0: Well, didn't you say that when you compare across the board. Yes. Um, comparing the responses of people of color.
1: Right.
0: Toward people of color. Right. Uh, compared to people, people, white people, right. about white people, right. I, one would almost expect that it would be 80% favoring on each side, their own. Oh. And I find that very poignant. That's a very meaningful thing that it's not 80% on each side. Yes.
1: I think, I mean, I think that's a measure of um, various things in, in a community of african american or people of color there are lots of people who don't conform to the to the negative stereotype so why would a person of color have that stereotype as strongly as somebody who isn't in a community of color and therefore doesn't have those kinds of associations and and differentiations and so forth that's a very good point and i think the difference you know testifies to the to the coherence of the community of color but in a com- in a situation where the groundwater is no good. So, you know, it's an uphill battle, as it were. Somebody has a question back there. Yeah. It's not really a
4: question. It's a comment on
1: that. In the Come on, hold black on. community
4: is getting all of the institutional biases from the white community. So that 40% gap is with what they're learning mm-hmm. about what we're supposed to be biased about which is the white system. Right. So I might look at that a slightly different way. Um, When you say that black people were in the 40 to 50% range, let's just call it 50% for the moment, couldn't we also look at that and say, gee, black people are actually 50-50. They're looking at some white people as good, some white people as bad. They actually have less bias than white people. I mean, seriously, that's one another way of looking at it, I believe.
1: I think that's a good point. That's a good point. <coughs> okay, so uh, any more for now? Oh, yes.
2: Well, I, I was curious if this has been done in Africa. Yeah, I don't uh,
1: know the data. It has been done in yeah,
2: Africa. Yeah, because I've been in non-majority situations, and it's... A <laughs> You know, it's a really different world, and people wouldn't have, I wouldn't think they would have the same groundwater, you would really hope.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll respond once, and I'll let our South Africa expert re- respond, too. Um, in Latin American countries, in Central American countries where we have been, there I don't know the test results, but I do know there's, there remains a hierarchy that puts white people on the top, and Spanish origin, for example. So, But I won't say anything about the rest. John, did you want to? You can use
4: this one. So, so I grew up in South Africa, um, and it was certainly true that um, after generations of oppression, um, that, that did result in negative self-image for, for, for people if you were black, absolutely. And one of, the, one of the liberators of South Africa, Stephen Biko, was a young activist, and he, um, um, his mission was to call the, the black young people of the time, uh, to claim themselves as human. Uh, would you be willing to regard yourself as a human being, he said to them. And he actually had the same invitation to whites, you know, would you be written? so. But, um, but certainly there, there was negative um, self-image um, in, in South Africa. Thanks. Thank
1: you. Okay, so I think, I hope, that um, A couple of little examples of how these biases, unintended biases, can make a huge difference. Um, These are from one of some, a few of the many, many studies in which implicit bias has been measured and then behavior and outcomes have been also measured. So, for example, doctors prescribe less pain medication for black patients with the same problems as white patients. Um, educators discipline children, black children, more severely than they do white children uh, with the same behavior patterns. Um, judge, people are, black people are judged less competent or less appropriate for uh, fair housing mortgage rates when, in housing purchases, etc. And I'm sure some of you can imagine some situations where, where this where this might um, come up. Employment is a well-documented one in which resumes with either white-sounding names or black-sounding names are circulated. Employers want to call back the white-sounding name people. The resumes are identical, only the names are different. They want to call back the white-sounding name resume people but not the black-sounding name. So it's It's policing policing is. (laughs) Policing, right, is uh, too complicated to get into, right? But, but I think
2: significant that even
1: police of color are more likely to um, stop Thank you. people of color than to stop white people. Yes, indeed. That, that uh, police officers of color are more likely to stop uh, people of color than they are to stop white people. So <clears throat> we've established I think, or at least I've tried to establish, that this these biases exist. They make a difference to how we think, feel, s- how we see the world, how we interpret the world, how we act. And I hope I have laid the ground Oh, not a good choice. How I, I hope I have Um, laid the foundation for some thoughts, for for some basis for believing that this can be changed, that there's some reason to to be hopeful about the possibility of changing these things. We first have to acknowledge that they could happen to us. We have to be aware of when they happen to us because they will. And um, then we have to take on the task of figuring out what to do about it. So my (coughs) request to you for a few minutes now would be to (coughs) join with a group of people around you and think about ways you might be able to challenge your own implicit biases, to react in a way or cope with them or handle them or manage them, um, (coughs) to retrain yourself if you want. Um, And so I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk about that with your next door neighbors and their immediate friends, and um, at the end of a few minutes of of thinking about what strategies might be useful, we'll talk about what they, what you've come up with, and and I will um, share some results of some studies that have been done in which this uh, kind of retraining has happened, okay? You're on your own good thank you very much so um, I'd like to, inter- before I hear from you, I'd like to introduce this, this uh, a little bit because um, obviously psychologists who discuss, who investigate implicit uh, associations and implicit biases would like to know something about how they can be changed. We pretty much know how they're formed, but how, are, how can they be changed? And in some early-ish studies, people uh, did things in the laboratory, and I'm gonna bet that some of the things you came up with are some of the things they did in the laboratory. And then subsequently, a woman in, in Wisconsin, Patricia Devine, ca- did a study of uh, with, cu- with students, so she had them captured for a whole semester, and she could study their attitude change over a long period like Weeks instead of minutes, and she uh, taught various strategies that she drew from previous literature, where people uh, were studying attitude change and and adapted them and taught them to the students, and then had the stu- tested their implicit association beforehand, then taught the students, and then had them do it and report how often they did it and so forth, and then at the end of the, I believe it was 12 weeks, but 8, 10, some number of weeks, retested them and found a significant decrease in the preference for whites among her Wisconsin predominantly white students. In her case, 90% of those white students showed a preference for whites in the implicit association test. So uh, that's a pretty long-term change and that suggests that not only do we understand the mechanism more or less correctly, at least correctly enough to address it, but that there's real reason to think, okay, we can address this. She found that there were a couple of underlying attitudes that were crucial to the amount of change that the students achieved. One of them was acknowledging that this was a possibility rather than denying it. Becoming aware of their own responses when they might be based on an uh, an implicit negative association and then motivation to change. So they were all sort of motivated. It was a class though they weren't graded on how much better they got. Um, And again on the resource list that we that you can get if you sign up for the email, uh, all these strategies that she used will be there and you can go read the study if you want to get that deeply into it and so forth. But now I will say what strategies did you come up with and let's see how you enrich Patricia Devine's list or illustrate her list or whatever. So anybody want to volunteer a strategy that you thought might be helpful? Oh, yeah, wait, there's a mic coming to to hear your uh, ideas.
2: Thanks. The American Association of University Women, AAUW, in 2016 put out an article about how to fight implicit bias. And they had a list of strategies for individuals and then a list of strategies for organizations or institutions. And one of the ones that I really liked is this idea of intentionally finding examples that disrupt stereotypes, and then keeping those examples in mind when, you're, when, you're, um, when you are interacting in a way that would reinforce those stereotypes. So in other words, be very conscious about bringing to mind counterexamples of
1: stereotypes. Good. So counterexamples and keeping them in mind. There are sort of two things. One of them is having the counterexamples, and the second one is being aware of when you need to pull them in and be attentive to them. Uh, good. And the AAUW, good for them. This is one of the many organizations that's doing something with implicit bias and training in how to deal with it. Somebody else has a mic. I, I got one
3: over here. Okay, yeah. um, well, we had two uh, listening before you speak. Simple but wonderful suggestion. <laughs> um, I don't know if this thing's really on.
1: It is. It is. It is. We can hear you. Okay.
3: Um, and also, at least for me, uh, I had a friend suggest if you, for like your Twitter feed, if you, whoever uses Twitter here, um, if you just populate it with people of color. Um, if you're white, I guess the reverse, if if it's opposite. Um, and also, you practice within that this. Listening for you, talk or think too deeply, react. So, yeah.
1: Great. So provide yourself with a lot of counterexamples. Uh oh. What about Provide yourself with. A, I'm incompetent. <laughs> Thank you. Provide yourself with a lot of counterexamples in order to have new material different from what's coming in. Otherwise. Mm-hmm. Somebody else.
3: Uh, one of the ideas we came up, I thought, that we came up with that I thought was good was to uh, start with uh, young children and uh, make sure that if you know if you have ch- young children, to make sure that they spend time with other children who are different because children t- tend to get along regardless. And uh, sometimes, you know, it's, we made the point that it's a lot more difficult to change your bias once you're full grown adult. So we thought it was a good idea, you know, to start with children and, and you can learn a lot from watching children interact. That and along with uh, making the effort to get to know other people and, you know, being very intentional in trying to spend time with people of different groups. Because the, the more time you spend with people of a different ethnicity, uh, the more ammunition you have to fight against your biases, and the more time you spend with your own group, the more susceptible you are to your own biases that 's pretty much what we came up with
1: very good i i didn 't read this uh, particular study; I only read a secondary report of it, but along the lines of the young children, uh, the study was to uh, was involved early elementary school kids and deep, deep, deep exposure to music of a different culture. So that the kids by this music curriculum got to know and understand somebody, somebody, some group very different from their own. And the idea seems that I said, I didn't read the whole study, but the idea seems to be that once you kind of break into the notion that there's the good guys and the bad guys, then you can deal much more equitably with the rest of the world, all of whom are interesting, wonderful, and very likely different from me. So that I got a foundation that prepares me to see other people on that kind of footing instead of this kind.
0: Um, In the immediate moment, if you try to keep in mind the stimulus pause response, and the pause is for choices, and the recognition that you have a number of choices at that moment, rather than going immediately to the response.
3: Uh, a, a strategy, is this working on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just occurred to me thinking about children, um, and we talked also about how we can't just leave it to the children, but if, if, if kids are exposed to uh, many friends and co- uh, cohorts of other groups and ethnicities in school, but in their neighborhoods, or who we as parents or grandparents are friends with, are, we're all pretty the same, they might think of a school's that place where I learn how to be with other people Um, But they might not imagine themselves into adulthood being friends with and neighbors with folks who are different from them. So a strategy we can do for ourselves, but also our children, is to model for them so they can imagine themselves into the world we hope. Um, And we just might be changed too. It it strategically is good for us as well as the children.
1: Yes, indeed.
2: Are we giving it I just had to say a big amen to the thing about children because <laughs> I can tell you from experience, myself and, and several of my close friends, that we all have children around the same age. If you are explicitly talking to your children about this and teaching them these values, and you're deliberately exposing them to diversity and different experiences and all of those things they will be happy as they become teenagers and college students to constantly and consistently point out your biases of any kind <laughs> they will if you're being if you make a racist remark, a sexist remark, if you are gender insensitive, if you are culturally appropriating, they will make sure that you're aware of it and it's fun that's funny but it's, it's but important. to me that's very helpful i mean and and it really is a great strategy for the future and not just as individuals but what they're going to do out in the world i guess we just need to teach them don't just tell me tell everybody (laughs) tell anybody you hear doing it don't don't feel like you can only say it to me but it's true
1: we have a mic for Uh, We have one person in our group that teaches in a a school that's majority
0: people of color, which um, makes a big difference. One person mentioned, I go to a drumming class or a drumming group. Um, I've been taking African dance for 14 years. And um, having put ourselves
1: in those situations, we feel that there is somewhat of a change in that. (laughs) You know, for me, I feel like it's just beginning
0: to sink in more and be more consistent that I'm not as reactive
1: um, in those ways. But anyway, African dance class Tuesday nights at seven uh, 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 7.30, the Cultural Arts Center, third floor. It's fabulous. (laughs) Uh, So...
2: Mr. Rogers had a great quote, that there was no one that you couldn't love once you knew their story. So taking a look at people as individuals and trying to understand what their story may be, that they're somebody's mother or brother or child and what they have been through and trying to see the world from their eyes can change how you view not only them, but
1: everything else around you. Well, I think you've got pretty much, I'm not going to, you can have another moment to give some more ideas. But I think you've pretty much gotten all the ones that Patricia Devine talked about. Stereotype replacement, right? Listen, stop, do something else, bring a counterexample in and keep it in your mind. Imagine somebody different from the stereotype or a different response from the one you made and do that. come to know individuals, people's, people as individuals, take the perspective of that person rather than just following that in first um, response, increase opportunities for contact uh, with people who are different from you, um, listen wasn't mentioned by her but that's uh, certainly, that's the first step, right? You have to block that response and then do something else. I put a couple more on and I want to do, I'm doing that because I want to bring the discussion back a little bit to the whole institutional focus. Remember we said John started out by saying it's a loop and we're in the groundwater and the groundwater is not good and it's feeding our, our implicit negative associations and then we're CREATING AND MAINTAINING THE INSTITUTIONS THAT ARE PROVIDING THE EVIDENCE FOR THESE NEGATIVE STEREOTYPES. SO WE'VE GOT TO CLEAN UP THE GROUNDWATER. HOW DO WE DO THAT? WELL, WE AS INDIVIDUALS CAN DO ALL THESE THINGS. AND THAT MAKES US, I'LL SAY PERSONALLY, MORE COMFORTABLE, MORE INVOLVED. IT GIVES ME SOMETHING TO DO ALL THE TIME. Um, IT KEEPS ME ALWAYS THINKING ABOUT THESE ISSUES. IT KEEPS ME, um, YOU KNOW, MY, This is where having black friends, you know, you can say, well, I got another black friend. Well, that's often the response of individuals. I have a black friend. That's not enough. Black friends are great. They can help us with all these things. But that won't change the institutions. So as we think about our own personal behaviors, we also want to think about, okay, how do I extend that to being involved in some way with, people of color who also know what this is all about and can work to make the changes. So, for example, if I were, let's say, um, mentoring or working with a child of color, that's terrific. And that child grows up and maybe, you know, whatever that child comes to be and so forth, it's a better chance than the child might have had if, if I hadn't, maybe. But it doesn't change the school. It just means that child may be benefited. What has to happen? Well, we have to come to understand how the schools have become racialized and how they're set up and how the curriculum and the training of the teachers and the structure of the schools and all the things that create a racialized school exist and where are they and how do we change them so that Every time we do an individual thing, it's great. But until we get involved in institutional change, it's like, what's that game? You know, whack a mole or whatever. You whack one down and it pops up someplace else. And there aren't enough of us <laughs> hitting down the little bad things. We have to really fix it. We have to purify the groundwater. So every time we think about what we're doing as individuals, we want to spread it and we want to think institutionally. If a, if a home buyer isn't getting a person of color who wants to buy a home, isn't getting a good loan, we need to address the banks, we need to address the finance system. If doctors aren't, this is a particular case, if doctors aren't um, finding equal outcome in lung cancer patients at Moses Cone Hospital or Wesley Long Hospital, why not? Well, it turns out that these black, patients were not being reminded to schedule their surgery, and the white patients were. So this is not as frequent. I don't mean to say they never were, but there was a decision point. And where there's a decision point is a place where bias can really make a difference. So here's a African-American breast cancer, sorry, <laughs> lung cancer. Um, patient who doesn't get reminded and that person doesn't schedule his or her surgery as quickly as the white patient does. So th- people like Red Cohn recognized this. It was a part of a study done by um, the Greensboro Healthcare Disparities people, a cure, and I can tell you more about that if you want to know, but, but um, when they corrected that, the outcome for black patients improved and the outcome for white patients improved, i.e. everybody needs to be reminded to schedule their surgery. And when we do, when we make an improvement that benefits people of color, it's going to benefit white people too. So institutional change is really where we want to be thinking. And why I said play the race card is because from from this series, from doing our work series, Racism, race differences, the racial hierarchy is every place. Play the race card by thinking what would it be like if this person were white instead of black or if this person were black instead of white. Think about that and ask the question, how does this situation come to be? Until you, until we do that, we won't know where the decision points are. We won't know how to hold ourselves accountable. We won't know how to change the institution, and we won't be able to do it. But when we get systematic like that, then we can. And that's the last one. <clears throat> Disaggregating data means, you know, if, <clears throat> this is another real example. If the school system says more, more kids are graduating and going to college, Is that all kids or is that only white kids? And it turns out when you break the data down by race, it's white kids, not so much kids of color, either Hispanic or African-American. Who's accountable to that? Where's the accountability for this? So those are the kind of things that follow on. Once we get to the point of asking ourselves, could there be bias here? Where could it show up? What am I doing? what's the system doing, then we get to institutional change, I think. And I do think there's reason to be hopeful and to be optimistic. Because why? Well, first of all, because you're all here and you all took this seriously and engaged. Um, Secondly, because we've learned that we we know that what we have learned, we can unlearn. And thirdly, because we know what we have created, we can change. So I think it's a long-term process, and it isn't going to be easy, and it won't be fun, but it's very rewarding. So thank you all for coming. want <laughs> to Thank you. Uh, Claire,
4: thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. And thank you all for being here. Um, the, um, the, the questions and the responses were... Um, really heartwarming as well as interesting. Um, Seems like we are really gathered wanting to change the way we do things and um, wanting this to be a society which is really equitable for everybody. And that's very strengthening in a time when there's a lot of forces keep pulling us apart and moving us into fear and building uh, circles to keep people out. Um, This was a different opportunity. Um, I hope that, um, that some of you will, well, I hope that all of you, will consider um, continuing this work. Um, uh, certainly, um, GARA would love to have your ongoing involvement. Um, and um, to have details on how to do that, make sure that we have your email. Um, or talk to one of the um, uh, GARA folks. Could you just stand up again, those of you who actually are part of GARA? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So buttonhole one of them, but most importantly, uh, give you email. If you'd like to use the card um, to have any either any uh, response um, to tonight, any suggestions for what we might do in the future um, in terms of topic, um, please uh, use it to um, to give us feedback. Um, we will send you email with um, with some questions also, um, and so you can do it by email if you would prefer. Yeah. So let me just leave you with um, with the invitation from um, from uh, Stephen Biko. Is um, would you would you be willing to regard yourself as a human being? Thank you.